Good evening, everybody. Last week, we touched on Psalm 90. And uh, my goal is to get through actually three psalms tonight. Um, they're more typical length, so two of them are about 12 verses, and one of them is five. Um, so we'll see what happens there. Uh, psalm 91, as we're starting in here with, um, is has quite a few recognizable verses. I think this is probably the one most of us would recognize the most. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Um, quoted in the New Testament along with a couple of other uh, passages from the psalm. It's an orphan, which um, if you don't know what that means, an orphan psalm is one that doesn't have an author listed. Um, but it does have a couple of other or rather, it doesn't have any other information at all in this case. So not even telling us what kind of a song it is, it just is. Um, but it is quoted in the New Testament. It's an important reference about angels. And there is a, an association with, uh, with the Exodus in verse 4. So last time I uh, read the entire psalm and then we quoted on it verse by verse. I think this time I'm going to jump ahead to the quoting on it verse by verse rather than reading the whole thing first. Is that okay with everybody? It's a change in procedure, and it means I have to click through a couple of slides here, but we'll uh, jump down to the beginning of the, of the text. So uh, verses one and two. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So here we have the idea that uh, the author brings us, which is that God is our refuge and our shelter. Um, so he's the place we run to when we're in trouble. Um, does anybody know, or has anybody ever been to the castle that's here on the screen? It's the Blarney Castle in Ireland. Um, so we had someone this morning who had been, uh, who had been there and recognized it. So, but you can see that the, the very tall ramparts and so forth are, uh, there are comfortable chairs too, Jameis, if you want, but, unless you'd fall asleep. But I don't want you to hurt your neck straining that way all night. But, uh, so, uh, but the Lord is the refuge we run to in times of trouble. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. I want to talk about both of those uh, things. So first of all, what's a fowler's snare? Well, I mean, I'm talking about what it is. It's for catching birds, yeah. And it's a, a net, basically. And then the bird flies up and bang, you got the bird. Okay? Then you go in and untangle the bird. By the way, I have no idea what this bird is. It's a, not a North American Midwestern bird that I recognize at all. It looks like a small meadowlark to me, but I don't know exactly what it is. But anyway, uh, so that's the fowler's snare. And there are other passages that talk about that. Psalm 124, we have escaped like a bird out of the fowler's snare. And Proverbs uh, 6, 5, free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. Uh, boy, if somebody could explain to me how a gazelle would free itself from the hand of the hunter. Did they catch gazelle with their bare hands? My brother and I used to catch crayfish in the creek with our bare hands, but, and we would try to catch trout, but 
a gazelle? I just don't understand exactly. Uh, uh, I know, but you should, wouldn't you use a weapon? You know, I mean, if you've shot a gazelle with an arrow or something, it's not going to escape. Yes? I don't know where this is out of oh. Uh huh. Really, those are people with serious endurance. Uh, wow, because compared to a gazelle, I'd be like, "Well, that was three seconds." Yeah, goodbye. I'll have salad again tonight. Um, but uh, although it does occur to me that if you would set a trap for the gazelle, like a a, a snare or something like that, but. Um, so, but then the second half of that, uh, the line above there, the deadly pestilence, what's being talked about there with deadly pestilence? Plague, plague. And uh, so shortly after the time of Moses, there was a plague up north called the plague of Megiddo, unknown number of deaths. Uh, after that, these are the major ones. Um, uh, about the time of the prophet Malachi, the other end of the Old Testament, you had the plague of Athens, where 75,000 to 100,000 people died um, in Athens with a single plague, probably a problem with the water supply. Then there was a Greek plague. No one knows what it was exactly. Um, maybe influenza, they really don't know, and they don't know how many people died. And then in uh, China, the Jianan plague was maybe typhoid, um, but not sure about that. Um, uh, Connie, anybody know what causes typhoid? Is it just a typhoid bacillus or something like that? I'm not really sure. Something along those lines. Then the Cyprian plague, which may have been the first instance of smallpox. Um, in, uh, this is New Testament time now, 250 to 266 on uh, Cyprus. Um, Antonine plague, a little bit before that in the Roman Empire. But 5 to 10 million people died. Um, then later, 6th century, the Justinian plague was the first pandemic, probably, where it, it spread all over Europe, into Asia, into Africa. Um, between 15, and they have no idea, between 15 and 100 million are the estimates. Just no clue how many people died from that plague. Quite a few in Africa, though. And, uh, hi, Sarah, they didn't leave you a spot. Okay. Uh, Japanese smallpox in the 8th century, and then the Black Deaths start showing up, uh, first Black Death, um, then the Mexican smallpox, and then um, you get down to, uh, 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 oh, with Mexican smallpox, five to eight million people died. When did Christopher Columbus discover Mexico? 1492, this is 1520. 30 years later, and the conquistadors did not have to draw a sword. Eight million people dead because of smallpox. Uh, that's really what happened as it ravaged Central America. And then in South America, Cocolitzli, which is fun enough that we should all say it out loud, the Cocolitzli plague, Cocolitzli, which sounds like something you'd have with marshmallows when it's cold out. Um, uh, but uh, five to 15 million, that's not so fun. It repeated. 30 years later with Kokolitzli's number two. Um, and then the bubonic plates come, which, which were horrific, um, uh, just horrific. 
1630s, 1650s, um, uh, one that hardly even gets counted in, in the Persian bubonic plague because it was far, far away in the 1700s. And then the cholera, 1840s to 1860, that was really in primarily in Britain, in uh, France, and maybe Germany. Uh, oh, uh, uh, north of France is, uh, is uh, uh, help me, Hercule Poirot is from uh, where? Um, I'm embarrassed. Um, Belgium and, and the low countries then, Amsterdam and so forth. Cholera though was, was awful and uh, uh, it, it just killed a lot, a lot of people. At that time, a guy named uh, Bateson came up with, uh, uh, well, the, the, the problem with cholera is sometimes people were dying of cholera or of electrocution. It was the early days of, of electricity and people didn't understand how the body, all, all the issues with the body, and they were still defining death in that, in that time because they figured if he wasn't moving for an hour, he was dead. Put him in a casket, and then what happens? Let me out! Okay, that kind of thing started happening. And they started hearing it during funerals. The guy would wake up and knock on the casket during his own funeral. Um, and so Bateson came up with Bateson's Belfry, catchy name, Bats in the Belfry, Bateson's Belfry, which was a little, a little uh, a dormer on top of a casket with a bell in it with a string going down to the, would be tied to the finger of the dead person so that if they woke up, they could ring the bell even if they couldn't say something with their voice. The guy became a millionaire selling these Bateson's Belfry caskets. Everybody wanted to have one. They also would sometimes pay a servant. If they, if they didn't do that, they would sometimes put a pipe from the casket up to the surface of the ground so the person could shout up the pipe. And they would hire a servant to spend three days and three nights listening because they were so paranoid of someone coming back to life after they had died because cholera was strange and so was so were these electrocution deaths and things like that. Bateson himself became absolutely obsessed with the idea that he himself would be buried alive because of course that's what he was doing for a living was that and to keep himself from being buried alive he did something horrific. He lit himself on fire. He immolated himself so that he knew he would not be buried alive. He went crazy, just absolutely crazy. And if you have nightmares about that tonight, I'm sorry. Let's just move on. But no slide. No, I didn't give you a picture. Um, third bubonic plague from 1855 to 1960 killed between 12 and 15 million people. And just to remember, the definition of an epidemic is a disease that spreads over a whole region and a pandemic is a disease that spreads around pretty much the known world without reference to numbers. It's not a matter of how many, it's just the where with regard to, to such things. Well, so this psalm has a lot of references though to epidemics and diseases and so forth. So we continue, he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Um, this is the largest eagle in the world. They don't occur in the United States. Anybody know what it's called? 
It's the imperial eagle of Europe, Africa, and the Levant. They have them in Israel. Napoleon Bonaparte used this as his symbol. It's an eagle bigger than the American bald eagle. So it was that the, the big imperial eagle on a stick was the symbol in, in his army. Um, but under the wings of the Lord, pretty common expression in the Old Testament, under the Lord's wings meant under the Lord's protection. For example, in Ruth 2, Boaz says to the new girl who's, who's come to harvest with his, with his workers, this is on the bottom there. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Okay, And of course, an actual photograph of Ruth. Thanks for laughing. Appreciate that. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Nor the pestilence, again the pestilence, the plague, that stalks in the darkness. How scary is this language about these plagues? When would a plague have hit Israel? Jameis? With a plague? Oh, 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 David's threshing floor. I'm still in Ruth in my head. Yeah, that was more of an engagement party. But yeah, with David, the, the, the angel of the Lord coming to kill and so forth that stopped at the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite, excellent. I was also thinking of, at, for one thing, at the beginning of the Exodus, you have the plagues themselves of Egypt. But more than that, um, later on in the history of Israel, you have plagues coming whenever there's war. And you would get sword, famine, and plague because in, when you have a, a war, and especially when you have siege warfare, and the people begin to die in the city and can't be buried, what do you do with them? And then the, 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 the corpses, the animals, the people, and so forth, eventually stuff starts to infect the water supply and the food supply, and it's just disease just gets everywhere after a while. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It is serious. Yeah. So the plague that destroys at midday, a thousand may fall at your side, and I think that's a, and, and along with the 10,000 at your right hand, that's not a reference to war there. I think that's still a reference to the plague. The thousand, the 10,000 falling nearby, but it will not come near you. So, uh, the picture, anybody know who that's a picture of? He's visiting bubonic plague victims in the city of Jaffa on the coast of Israel. And the guy in the weird hat is General Napoleon Bonaparte. Not yet emperor. He's General Bonaparte. What happened was, this is, in fact, this picture is a great piece of Bonaparte's um, propaganda literature because what happened was uh, he had suffered a defeat in Egypt. And he's on his way home, but he can't just go home with, I lost a battle. So instead he goes home and has a painting done of him visiting the poor plague victims 
in Israel to boost his own, the, the morale of the people. What a great guy that he went and did this. Um, Napoleon and two men at that time period, Napoleon and Lincoln, were geniuses at the public view of everything that they had done. Um, and Bonaparte especially was constantly posing for paintings. And he would tell the artist exactly what to put where, who should have the brightest face, who should have the darkest face, you know, things like that. So he, he became just a master of that. All right, eight to 10. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked if you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you, no disaster will come near your tent. Um, so I think of Israelites living probably in cities and you know stone or brick houses, but a lot of them still lived in tents um, at this time. This, by the way, the picture is of the, the prison in Britain called Newgate. Not Nougat, that's in a candy bar, but Newgate. Uh, and you can tell by the window, the designer of the Newgate prison designed the prison for the most terrible emotional effects on the prisoners. So he would make the window bigger on the inside of the room and smaller as you get closer to the outside of the, of the castle. Um, so that it would just emphasize how much of a prisoner you were. And the floors would also slope up toward the window to make it more difficult to, to see and so forth. You had to be away from the window all the time. And this particular room is where they kept the condemned criminals before they were hanged. So uh, just terrible place. And you can see that that guy is certainly not happy. Um, but no disaster will befall you. will come near your tent. Um, this photograph is um, from Israel before it was really remade. You see the tower there? That's not a minaret, which is a Muslim thing. It's been converted into a minaret with that railing on the top, but the rest of it is all more uh, uh, older Crusader era construction uh, before the Muslim con conquest. It's called the Tower of David, actually, although it comes from after David's time. Uh, this is... That same street where we saw the painting of Napoleon on the, on the streets of Jaffa on the coast. Um, but again, a city with a lot of you know, activity and gates and walls and things like that. But you start to get out of the cities and you end up with sort of this uh, area here. This is outside actually of one of the walls of Jerusalem. And uh, there's just nothing, not much out there. There aren't many people living outside of the cities. Um, do you see in this particular picture, it looks like piles of stones to me or rubble in the foreground. Those aren't stones. They just had the orange harvest and those are oranges piled up for people to buy. So, but it's the entire orange harvest uh, there in those piles. Isn't that interesting? It'd be a much more uh, vivid picture if it were in color, but I can't do that. Although I can do it with this picture of a typical Bedouin's tent. So uh, uh, this is how many of the people actually did live, and some of them still do. Um, inside, you know, you kind of wonder if it was kind of cruddy inside or whatever, but they had rugs on the floor and pillows and places to sit, and it was spacious. You didn't have to bend over. Um, interesting uh, uh, thing about this architecture 
is that, do you see all the tassels hanging from the top? Um, if you've ever uh, seen an airplane wing, you know that airplane wings are kind of bumped on the top and flat on the bottom. That's to create lift so the airplane will go up. That's actually why an airplane rises. But here, the tassels do the opposite. So they cause the air to flow the other direction over the tent, and it actually keeps the tent from lifting up and blowing away. So it, as it were, pushes down on the tent, if that makes sense. It's a, uh, uh, they're also kind of weighted. They also will keep the, the wind from blowing through the tent uh, too wildly by just being kind of a windbreak up at the top there. Um, but really uh, kind of a lovely place to be. You can see low tables there and lots and lots of pillows and so forth. Very comfortable place to be. So back to the psalm here. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So you have that um, parallel uh, uh, ism of the, of the hands versus the foot, the angel's hands against your foot, and they're lifting you up so that the rocks don't get you. Um, we've all struck our foot against either a stone or a doorway or a cat or whatever it happens to be, uh, but you stub your toe on something, you don't forget it easily. Um, with me, it's the wheel of the, my corner of the bed. I seem to stub my foot on about once a week. Um, it just, I, I, I don't know what to do about it. It's just there. It's just the way that the thing is designed, I suppose. Um, uh, but uh, the, the, uh, we have a lot of information about angels on page two. I'm going to get to in just a moment. But some references in the, in the New Testament are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. That's a question that expects the answer, yes. And then Luke 4, they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Who said that? Who quoted this in Luke 4? Jameis? The devil. The devil actually quotes a psalm to Jesus more than once. And Jesus answers him, by the way, out of uh, Deuteronomy each time. The remarkable thing about this verse that the devil quotes is the very next verse in the psalm is this. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. So, you know, that, that's the prophecy of the devil in Genesis 3, that the snake will have his head crushed. So he's really dancing with fire here to, to do this. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Who in the Old Testament killed lions? There are a couple, maybe three of them. Samson is one. David. And there's one more. I don't know if you knew about this. But one of David's mighty men went down on a snowy day into a pit and killed a lion. Kind of hand-to-hand -hand combat. with. A, I don't know if I would have done that, but he did. I don't know if he had a spear or, or I don't know, if he hypnotized a lion or sang to it or what, but killed a lion. But it's interesting that it was on a snowy day. You don't hear about snow a lot in Bible history, but there's one, you know, in the days of David's early years. And then Jesus said to all of us, this was to the apostles as they were about to go out on a 
mission trip, but I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Um, everybody know what a scorpion is? Is that kind of a, I don't know, I, I'm not sure of the taxonomy. Is a scorpion technically a, uh, an insect or is it a spidery kind of a thing? It's an arachnid, that's a spider, right? All right. One of the worst of the spiders, along with every other spider. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. In my house, uh, my whole marriage and ever since, uh, with the kids still at home, um, I hear shrieks and I know that someone found a spider because I'm the only one in the family who can go and kill a spider, I guess. So that's also actually why I keep a roll of tape by my bedroom door. Because that's, that's my preferred way of killing a spider is not to squish it, but to use a loop of tape and just pick it up and throw it away. So said, <laughs> oh no, it's dead before it gets to the before it gets to the to the to the to the garbage can, it's dead. But the tape allows me to to get it without getting spider blood all over the walls, you know. So, I, I was a house painter for fifteen years. I don't like it when people get you know blood on the walls. So, there you are. But it, it still it still takes the sheen off of my paint job. Yeah. <laughs> so. Because he loves, you, loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. Um, so the Lord just showering blessings on those who love him, who have faith in him. The Lord himself is the one who gives faith. And now look at what he does, essentially rewarding faith. Um, and... Uh, I, I can't help but think of my favorite passage in the prophet Nahum. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Um, so the, just about the only gospel passage in that prophet, but very, very similar to this passage. And then the psalm ends with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So blessings here below and blessings here above, right? Long life and salvation. Anything on Psalm 91? Shall we go to, you know what, before we go to 92, can we go to the page two of your handout? I'll just read you some things about angels that didn't come up in the, in the text of the psalm. And I know that bulleted points are supposed to be short and not giant paragraphs, but, well, deal with it. Okay, so... The angels were created by God at some time during the six days of creation. Um, and there's a good argument for every one of the six days of creation. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. Good argument for why they were created on each one of those days. And I don't know which one it was. I think it was one of them. I mean, I know it was one of them. But I suspect it was a particular one. But I'm not going to go through it now. Maybe another time if we're in the prophet Ezekiel together. The angels are spirits without physical form, but God permits them to be seen for man's benefit from time to time. Usually an angel looks like what? Young man. Except, do angels in the Bible ever look like women? 
Yes, at least once. Um, also in the prophet Ezekiel, no, I'm sorry, Zechariah, prophet Zechariah, there are angels with the faces of women and the wings of a stork that pick up a basket of sin and carry it away. Um, so occasionally, and then in Revelation, we have angels that look like critters, like animals and so forth, but, some, but not always like males, sometimes uh, like women. Um, the angels are able to interact with the material world for man's benefit. I'm thinking of especially in the story of Lot in Sodom, when the angels actually reach in the house and pull him out of the house. That's certainly an angel interacting with Lot, isn't it? You know, he wouldn't have gotten out. And then one of the most comical stories, in my opinion, is when an angel comes to wake up Peter in prison and Peter won't wake up. So how does the angel wake him up? gives him a good whack he kicks him you know sometimes it's hard to wake up a teenager um so you do what you got to do right um and uh yeah and, and wake up of course what would you do what would your reaction do if an angel actually woke you up in the middle of the night you know ah! you know I, I, i'd be pretty scared i think i'd be pretty surprised i would also demand why are you the one way i mean what's wrong that an angel is waking me up it, you know, it's probably not good news, right? Um, I don't think an angel would wake me up in the middle of the night to tell me I'd become a grandfather. You know, I think it would be something a little bit more terrifying than that. Um, each angel has a personality, a complete personality, unique to himself. Gabriel has his own way of greeting people. He keeps saying to people in the Old and New Testament, greetings, you who are highly esteemed. So just look for that when Gabriel talks to people. He's in Daniel as well as in Luke. Um, then there's the angel. I preached on this one Easter. There's an, the angel that got to roll the stone away and he sat on top of it. And then when he delivers the Easter message, he says, and I got to be the one to tell you. you know, I think that's his personality coming out there a little bit. Um, kind of cool. I don't think I could have helped from saying the same thing myself. That's in Matthew. Um, Angels are also, oh, then there's the angel who got held up uh, in Daniel. If that's, is that chapter 10 or 11? He apologizes that he's late. I was fighting against the, the, the angel prince of Persia. Sorry, you know, I, I, I got held up. It's an interesting moment that an angel can actually be stopped, uh, prevented from getting somewhere. He has had other business to attend to. Um, and the angels are unchangeable. They don't grow or grow old or die. They don't have babies. They are immortal. Nothing uh, in their being can, can, be, can be killed. And unless otherwise permitted, they can't be seen. They don't take up any physical space, so they're illocal, we would say. And yet, they are in a definite place and not everywhere at once. God is everywhere at once. An angel is here. But then he might be there, and then over there, and then here again. So they're, they, 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 they are not everywhere all at the same time, but they're quick. Um, so can the devil be listening to a conversation in your house and in mine at the same time? Well, he can go from there to there to there to there to there to there very quickly and keep it all sorted in his head, probably. Um, he also has servants, other, other demons. Um, Angels um, are not confined by natural laws when it comes to travel and movement. They have power. They are able to carry out the will of God, whatever it might be. 
Angels can perform miracles when commanded to by God, but they don't exert their own will over creation. Um, an angel is able to kill if God commands it. When Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, the, the father of a boy that was demon-possessed said, the demon keeps trying to kill my son by throwing him in water or fire. And then we have an example of a good angel also killing in the story of the Exodus. A demon would not have given credence to blood over the door, but God sends an angel to kill the Egyptians as the sign of the plague and so forth. Um, angels who did not fall with the devil are now the elect angels. There are quite a few passages. The most clear one is 1 Timothy 5.21. They're confirmed in their holiness. They are unable to fall any longer. So you have guardian angels watching over you. The Bible does talk about guardian angels, but never in the singular. And the Bible never says it's the same angel or the same group of angels. So you might get a different squad tomorrow than you had today, but there are angels watching over you. Um, <clears throat> however, none of them can suddenly turn into a demon because it was tempted. The angels are confirmed now in their holiness. So they will not suddenly fall. You probably had never thought of that. And now I've creeped you out by mentioning that it could happen, except that it can't happen. Is that clear? Okay. Um, the angels want to know God's will. When they're not on an errand to God, they want to look into, this is 1 Peter 1.12, they'll look into the preaching of the gospel, but they're subject to the same scriptures given to man. They don't have special insight apart from the messages that God gives them to take to people. So angels benefit from our searching the scriptures. And I think, I haven't uh, done a, an in-depth study of this, but I suspect, and I can think of one or two examples, of angels who benefit from their study of the scriptures and from our study of the Bible by sometimes turning to language that we use to deliver messages. You know, uh, for example, Gabriel's, uh, message you who are highly favored that was somebody else's greeting that maybe he picked up along the way um, what language do angels usually speak what do they speak in heaven I imagine it's good midwestern English what else would it be probably with a weird combined Minnesota and Wisconsin accent that would just sound familiar to me yeah so um one last thing, we should never worship or pray to the angels. The Bible forbids that many times. Um, and just as we should not worship or pray to anybody except God himself. And we don't, ask, we don't need to ask angels for help in times of need because they're already there to do that. God sent them to do that. But if you want to talk to your guardian angels, that would not be a prayer. You could invite them to pray along with you as you thank God. Does that make sense? You know, or just say thanks without making it a prayer or something like that if they uh, help you and rescue you. So, Mark? Absolutely. An intelligent creature with a personality and a spirit and, and incidentally, with emotions. The angels rejoice when any... Uh, sinner repents. That's that's one of their chief roles. Um, so, and they benefit from your study of God's word.
They can also be offended in 1 Corinthians by uh, a woman whose hair is, or head is not covered, a woman who is improperly dressed in worship. So we'll cover that in 1 Corinthians but so that an angel can be offended. All right. Anything left on Psalm 91? You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.